Today on the ESG Beat, we will hear from Jillian Tett, a U.S. editor-at-large for the Financial Times. Jillian leads the newspaper's editorial operations in the United States and across all platforms. She is also one of the leading media voices on the changing role of companies in society. Jillian advocated for the launch of the Financial Times Moral Money Newsletter, which is my go-to source for reporting on sustainable capitalism and ESG. Jillian holds a PhD in anthropology, which is the lens through which she reports on financial markets and financial crises. This offers a nuanced and thoughtful view, which we will see today. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Jillian. Delighted to be on the show. Before we get into your current role at the Financial Times, I'd like to discuss a bit about your background. Um, You have a PhD in anthropology, and your book, The Silo Effect, examines the economy through that lens. And I'd like to ask you, how does that perspective inform your reporting? Well, people often think that anthropology is really just about the study of bones and weird rituals and (laughs) going to far-flung places and being a bit like Indiana Jones. Um, And in the past, uh, certainly anthropologists have studied a lot of pretty remote um, developing market countries and communities before. But these days they study advanced industrial economies as much as anything else. And anthropology is best defined by a process for looking at the world rather than the content or the subject that you actually choose to study in particular. And what defines it really is three things. Firstly, as an anthropologist, you constantly try and put yourself into the mind of the other, somebody who's different from you to get empathy for their point of view, their way of life, what matters to them. Um, Sounds very obvious, but it's often missing in the business world. And then secondly, you use that perspective, not just to understand how someone else thinks and operates, but also then to look back at yourself with fresh eyes um, and get better self-awareness, basically, um, and get a sense of context. And then thirdly, you then try and use that perspective of what I call the lens and then the mirror to look at all the parts of the world that you don't talk about. So the blank sheets, um, so the blank spots in your life, the blank spots on the map, um, all the areas which are what I call social silences, the parts of the world that we ignore because they're messy or inconvenient or they seem dull or geeky um, or just, you know, too boring to count. And um, that's the sort of trifecta approach which has very much informed the anthropology I did, but now very much is informing the journalism I'm trying to do as well. I'd like to take that lens and turn to moral money in particular. Um, I assign it in all of my classes, and um, I think that it does an amazing job at analyzing a very complex area. Can you tell us a bit about moral money and um, what inspired the FT to launch it? Well, what inspired the FD to launch it was really me doing a bit of quasi-anthropology again, because back in 2004, when I was running the financial um, credit market section of the FT, but at that point running the Lex column of the FT, um, I did a kind of quasi-exercise saying, well, if I was an anthropologist looking at the world of finance, what parts of the financial system are not being talked about but matter enormously? And back then I used that kind of a framework and realized that credit derivatives and credit markets were being totally ignored, but were very important. And that informed how I did my financial reporting in the 1990s, sorry, in in the noughties. Um, The launch of Moral Money really arose out of the same sort of impetus because 
I was very struck two or three years ago by the fact that I was getting a plethora of press releases from different companies talking about their ESG initiatives, their sustainability initiatives and what they were doing in environmental, social and governance issues. And um, my first reaction as a journalist was to chuck them all in the bin and assume that was just a bit of PR spin <laughs> and to think it didn't really matter or didn't count. And then I realized that that was a very journalistic centric perspective on life. You know, I was imposing my own preconceptions on everyone else. So I spent a bit of time just sitting down and listening to people who were sending all these releases and realized that irrespective of whether I thought that this was greenwashing, spin, whatever else, there was a reason why they were doing that. Um, and that was because, in a sense, business was waking up and realizing that all the things they had labeled as externalities before, like the environment or employee relationships or society, kind of was starting to matter more and more. And there was nowhere else in the mainstream media to really get coverage of that. So I pitched an idea to my colleagues at the FT. They were extremely cynical and skeptical. It took me about a year to persuade anyone to back the concept. Um, because for most journalists, you know, ESG stands for eye roll, sneer and groan, as I've told my friends in the past. Um, and, you know, it's always difficult to shift the zeitgeist. But eventually, the muse that has started... Um, and I'm delighted to say it's become one of our most successful new products ever um, because we have tapped into a big area of demand that's only got more and more important. That's fascinating. Um, and it also aligns with my experience in corporate governance scholarship. Um, there was a lot lot of cynicism um, about whether ESG was a thing or just hand-waving. And of course, those questions are important and need to be analyzed as well. Um, but now uh, this is such a mainstream corporate governance topic from um, the academic world as well. So it's nice to see that convergence and uh, that we're all, we all seem to be growing in the same direction. However, I must ask you, as someone who, who teaches about the changing role of companies in society, it is maddening to define concepts like ESG or corporate sustainability. And so how do you delineate moral money's focus? Well, one of the reasons I called it moral money is partly because it's not an acronym and there's too many acronyms. It's alphabet soup, um, which is very off-putting for ordinary people but also because I deliberately chose a name that's so vague that it can kind of move with the times and grow up as the sector grows up um, and as the boundaries get redefined. Um, I mean, there are big downsides to the name Moral Money. Um, we're not meaning in any way, shape or form to suggest that we're being religious or pious or holier than thou whatsoever. It was just a very nice quick tack to explain the fundamental idea, which is that we're moving towards what I call consequence-based capitalism or a world where, in a sense, we'll all impact investors because investment always has an impact. The question is whether it has a good impact or a bad impact and whether we think about it. And we never used to think about it, but now we are thinking about it. So that's what I call consequence-based capitalism. Um, in terms of where the sector is going, I mean, ESG, environmental social governance, is a very handy tool to use to split the different parts of this sustainability universe into different buckets so you can get your hands around it and maybe measure it or define it. Um, it's extremely imperfect. Many issues overlap. 
um, or rather blur between E, the S and the G. Um, you can't really have a sustainable company unless you have pretty good governance to start off with. So that's the first point. Um, so the G is always, should always be there, but it gets much less attention than the other two. Um, for much of last year, the E was a big one, partly because of Greta Thunberg, partly because of various you know, man-made disasters. Um, you know, California knows all about climate change um, because of the horrific fires and things. Um, and E is a lot easier to mention, uh, so much easier to define and to measure if you are a company. So, you know, you can track your carbon footprint. You can tr look at what happens with the carbon price. You can look at your emissions, that kind of stuff. Um, so that dominated the debate last year. I think COVID has now put more, a lot more emphasis on the S, the social aspect, um, both in terms of how companies interact with society more broadly, but also how they treat their own employees and also increasingly how they treat their supply chain and their you know, relationships with other business partners. So I suspect that's going to dominate in 2020, but I can't stress this strongly enough. They're all interrelated and they could equally well just be captured with the broad brush concept of sustainability. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I like the framing moral money because of the reasons that you articulate, because it is wide enough to allow this area to grow. Um, I named my uh, institute at Berkeley Business and Society for the same, for the same reason. I wanted to ask you about whether ESG can be seen less as a number of discrete issue areas from, that are really seemingly unconnected from, you know, board diversity to uh, worker pay to climate change and plastic straws, um, but more as a process for doing business and as a process really for mitigating risk. And that risk framing, given that you've covered this area in both the bull market and what will be worse than a bear market, um, seems to be a narrative um, in the reporting right now. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, when I started more on money and went around the FT trying to convince my colleagues we should do this, um, I had a three by three matrix, which pointed out that we had a shift in attitudes in the C-suite, the financial markets and the policymaking community, um, which was affecting the E, the S and the G, but which was also driven by three discrete factors or buckets of people. You know, a minority of people were trying to actively change the world. Um, and they were primarily sort of, you know, Danish pension funds and nuns and increasingly wealthy millennials. And that was what I called impact investing. And then you had a group that were basically trying to do no harm to the world. Um, and that's where increasingly a lot of the mainstream institutions have been moving. And that's what I call sustainability. Um, and then there's a group who really want to do no harm to themselves. Um, and that's what I call the risk management crowd. And for them, ESG is absolutely about risk management. And that's the biggest group. And that's really what's driven moral money. Um, because the, the ultra converted, you know, have a lot of new sources already. Um, and they've been going for quite a while, although their numbers are growing. But it's the risk management crowd that have really driven us. And um, you can be, you know, cynical and, or you can be um, purist and say, well, this is outrageous. The risk management crowd are a bunch of hypocrites. They don't really believe in any of this. They're just doing it to protect themselves. And that's true. Um, but the reality is that, you know, having written about physical revolutions in the past as a war reporter, you know, um, 
revolutions happen not when you have a tiny committed band of evangelists who are banging the drums, but when the silent majority thinks that it's more dangerous for them personally to get in the way of a revolution or to not go along for the ride than to just simply go along with the flow. And I think that's where we are right now. And, you know, ESG, the risk factor, is absolutely coming center stage. Um, you know, because essentially it is most crude and simple. What ESG is about is really trying to take, dare I say, an anthropologist view on a company and look at all of it in an interconnected way and to ask the question, what are we not talking about? You know, what's the blank sheet of the, on the paper, which could come back to bite us? What are the externalities that we've deemed to be externalities that we can somehow write out of the picture and write out of our balance sheet and our calculations of enterprise value, but we should not be written out. Um, and it's really about having a holistic vision, lateral thinking. And that helps you to manage risks because you can see the stuff that you're not talking about that might come back and bite you whether it's cyber risk, you know, whether it's the hashtag me too risk, gender risk, whether it's environmental or supply chain, but it also creates resilience. And a couple of quite interesting things have happened recently. One is that um, if you, ESG sector as a whole has significantly outperformed, sorry, companies with a high ESG rating have outperformed those with low ESG ratings in the last couple of months. Um, Masters of the research showing that. Um, but what's more interesting is that BlackRock have just gone back and done a big study of previous um, downturns and discovered this pattern holds true in the last two. Now, admittedly, it only goes back for a decade because the ESG sector didn't really exist then. But they've also done studies and discovered that, although most people assume that's because of the um, you know, smashing of the oil and gas sector, they think that's boosted the ESG sector because ESG funds for the most part don't have those. Um, companies in their portfolio or not such a big exposure. What they realized was that has very little to do with it. It's primarily just down to good governance and the ability to look at um, issues through a holistic lens. So one thing that they're beginning to realize, and NYU has done some work on this as well, is that any company that's gone in and done a big audit of its supply chain for environmental reasons or for human rights reasons in recent years, and done all the forensic analysis of what's happening in the weeds of their supply chain globally. If they've done that for ESG reasons, which is often what's given them a good ESG rating, today that data is allowing them to be repurposing quickly and seeing what the COVID-19 impact is on that supply chain and potentially pivoting or at least an analyzing the risk. And it's made their supply chains much more resilient almost by accident. I mean, this wasn't planned. They often went in and did it for entirely different reasons, but suddenly that holistic perspective is working very well. Um, similarly, any company that's actually spent a lot of time trying to understand levels of trust inside the company, often again for ESG perspective, um, is suddenly realizing that they might've done that in the past because they wanted to be nice to their employees and responsible. But right now it's having a crucially important aspect in terms of whether the company can keep operating so that holistic aspect helps explain the outperformance recently um, and you know a group like blackrock is absolutely convinced it's going to keep becoming important if not even more important over the next year or two 
as companies try to make sense of an unfamiliar world. I couldn't agree with you more with respect to the process of ESG um, identifying information that companies wouldn't otherwise have and that informational advantage allowing companies to be more resilient. It's fascinating to see that play out um, before our eyes in this pandemic. Um, and it's encouraging um, for the future of ESG as well. So I'd like to discuss the role of the media and how you view the responsibility of the media to highlight ESG as an issue that should be reported upon. I think media needs to be holding companies to account, scrutinizing whether they live up to their claims. Um, I think the discussion about greenwashing is a very, very healthy thing because it shows that actually oversight and greenwashing is increasing, and that's good. Um, I think that it needs to be demystifying dramatically what these terms mean and trying to make sense of this ghastly alphabet soup. That's very, very important indeed. And I think the media also needs to be trying to find um, examples of solutions and also pitfalls to highlight because people are, you know, are grasping for demonstration effect. Um, they're trying to make sense of, you know, I think the evolution has been in the last couple of years that people thought this stuff was ridiculous and hippie and irrelevant. Then they woke up and realized it might matter. Then they woke up and said, okay, so what exactly is it? So the media had to try and explain what it was. And now they're looking for, okay, I kind of get it. I want to kind of embrace it. What do I actually do now? And that's, again, very much a role. I think the media has to jump in and try and play right now. So let's look at some of the key moments and momentum behind the ESG movement over the past couple of years, really over the past year, in particular from, you know, Larry Fink's letters to the Business Roundtable to Davos. The corporate world appeared to be almost jockeying for who is embracing stakeholder governance the most. And how did you view those commitments and were you persuaded and how did you cover those commitments at the Financial Times? Well, we tried to basically record what people were saying or the announcements they were making to frame it, to make sure we gave it proper airtime because as I say, historically, the media just dismissed this and ignored it. Um, and then to try and look at whether, you know, the companies are living up to those promises and you know, that's not easy, but that's what, what that's what we've been trying to do. Yeah, uh, with respect to the business roundtable in particular, um, that statement, you know, redefining corporate purpose as being stakeholder oriented was so groundbreaking. Um, and yet, I was I was very happy to see reporting, you know, asking, okay, what now? How how are you <laughs> going to operationalize this statement? We called a lot of the companies afterwards and you know, tried to ask them what they meant by it. And I reckon about a third of them said to us, it's nothing different from what we're doing already. So we kind of went, oh, okay. Um, a third went, yes, we're doing X, Y, and Z. And we're going to try and, you know, really introduce changes, et cetera, et cetera. And in about a third of the cases, we got the impression that the CEOs hadn't even read the letter properly. Um, so, you know, <laughs> there you go. That's That's fascinating. And it'll be interesting to see whether that changes with, now concrete proposals coming out from thought leaders on how should the business roundtable operationalize that through changing corporate form or through issuing a statement of purpose signed by the board. 
Um, so let's let's zero in on Davos um, because Davos was uh, also very stakeholder governance oriented in 2020, and you regularly attend Davos. And after attending 2020, you co-wrote an article, Davos Special Edition: What Really Happened This Week. And in that article, you noted a marked shift in the mood regarding sustainability issues. And I wanted to drill down, um, what did you mean by that? Well, the fact that almost everyone was talking about it, and even people who were very cynical about the whole thing, felt pressure to respond and act and talk about it was startling. Um, so the first point was that there was a huge amount of recognition that this matters, which hadn't been there before. Secondly, there was a lot of discussion around the tangible, how do you actually take this and move forward with this? I mean, there was a great big discussion about how to create accounting standards and get out of this good awful mess between the GRI and SASB and TCFT. Um, you know, and so they were actually trying to do practical stuff to turn this into action. Um, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, obviously the environmental issues, but also about some of the social issues. So, you know, you put that all together and there was really quite a marked shift in the um, tonality of the meeting, which I very much hope is maintained going forward. Okay, so there is a difference both in degree and um, in kind. So there were more people talking about sustainability issues, but it sounds like they were also moving to operationalizing. Mm -hmm. um, so Goldman Sachs made that headline grabbing announcement about increasing board diversity, and then BP committed to more aggressive carbon reduction targets. So that momentum takes us to the present moment. We're recording this interview in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, you recently published an article entitled, Can Companies Still Afford to Care About Sustainability? So my question is, can they? I think the honest answer is that for many companies, they might think, gosh, no, because they're just fighting to survive. and they're hoarding every scrap of cash they have. They're trying to focus every iota of brain power on just simply surviving this current crisis. And it's entirely understandable, but I would switch it around and say, can companies afford to not think about sustainability right now? Because, um, you know, what's become clear is that we live in a world which is interconnected and prone to contagions of all sorts that we haven't really understood before that you know we're linked together in a global change of humanity and ignoring the weakest link matters when it breaks because it, it affects us all and we're also living in a world where social attitudes can change fantastically fast i mean people were stunned by the degree to which young people got involved with greta thunberg or suddenly overnight started stopped using plastic straws or suddenly overnight um started eating non-meat alternatives um but that kind of social attitude has been completely dwarfed by what we've seen by the shift that's happened in just the last two months. And we don't know where that's going to go in the future, but you add those elements together and we live in a very uncertain world where there's a lot of potential systemic um, risk right now. So companies need to be resilient in that face of that. And thinking about sustainability is an absolute core part of being resilient, but also they need to recognize they live in a world where issues of reputation can come back to bite them big time. I mean, companies have never been so scrutinized 
as they are now. And it's very dramatic, the difference between now and 2008, because when the 2008 financial crisis happened, everyone was in a state of shock, but they kind of didn't expect the banks and big companies to start rescuing everyone else or being socially committed. I mean, it really was all hands on deck, let's just survive. And this time round, there's a huge amount of pressure on the C-suite to think big picture and to think about their employees and society. And that really reflects a decade of changing attitudes. So it's possible that post-crisis, the pendulum will swing back again. But I think that any company which thinks it can ignore um, sustainability issues right now risks not only having big reputational issues further down the future, but also not having that all-important resilience, which is going to ensure that they can actually not just survive, but actually thrive in whatever new environment emerges. I'm, I'm really happy that you touched upon the difference between the 2008 crisis with respect to the expectation that society has of business and today. Although, you know, there are layoffs, there are furloughs, of course, um, there's also an unprecedented move by executives to sort of last, let's say, and take pay cuts themselves. Um, very different from the executives that went unscathed in the financial crisis. Um, so my last question is, um, this week, the Financial Times hosted a fantastic conference um, on the global boardroom um, with, you know, over 50,000 participants and uh, so many thought leaders. Um, what were the takeaways from that conference with respect to the role of the board in navigating the crisis, this crisis and navigating the next one, too? I think really three or four fourfold. Firstly, the most practical one to say straight up front is the economic outlook is darkening and probably worse than people even expected just two or three weeks ago. So be prepared. This is not going to be quick. It's not going to be shallow. The recession It's going to be very tough. Secondly, that we are looking at zeitgeist changes in all kinds of ways. So, you know, I think a lot of people, this is me talking, but a lot of people have been lulled into the sense that what's been going on is a bit like a reboot of your laptop. Um, you know, we spend so much time in our day-to-day -day lives in the last decade, this is from my anthropology training, where we've all been conditioned to expect that if something goes wrong with a device, if all else fails, you just literally switch it off, wait 10 seconds and reboot, and it comes back with software intact. And we're sort of extending that metaphor to the economy. And it's the wrong metaphor because it's not going to just reboot back to how it was before and probably shouldn't either. So, um, you know, businesses and boards need to recognize that, you know, things are changing quite significantly. And in an environment like that, you need a new holistic perspective. You need to be able to look at things that you used to consider to be externalities. And you need to try and embrace the unexpected. And having a sense of history is very powerful. Having a sense of psychology is good. Having a sense of anthropology, I'd argue, is very good as well, along with economics. Um, and, you know, I think that's one of the other messages that came out very clearly, that, you know, we don't know where this is going to end up. But society's scrutiny of businesses has never, has never been higher. And in, perhaps those demands are unrealistic. But you know, the relationship of society with their consumers, with their suppliers, and with the government is changing very fast. And so businesses need to be prepared. And an image I often use when I try to explain to people why anthropology matters, and I should say I'm actually writing a book about this at the moment, so this is why it's so much on my mind, um, 
is, you know, economics is brilliant. Having an MBA is brilliant. Having all the big data tools in the world is brilliant. It's great. It will help you enormously, but you need to recognize it's like a compass. And compasses are incredibly useful if you're stuck in a wood in the middle of the night and you want to work out which way to go. But if you only look down at your compass as you walk and never actually lift your eyes away from your compass and look around you, you will walk into a tree. Because just knowing what the big data analysis says um, or what the economic model says, you know, is one way to frame the world, but it's not sufficient. It's necessary, but anything but sufficient. And so I guess the other message that came out of the global boardroom is that we have to look up from our tools we've been using for the last two decades to try and make sense of the world and get a much more, dare I say, it, resilient big picture. And ESG is absolutely at the heart of that. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to reading your book when it's published. It's when I finish. I've got about two or three months to finish it. So there we go. <laughs> and, and maybe, maybe, uh, We'll have the pleasure of a book talk with you. Absolutely. I'd be delighted. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for the unique perspective that you bring to ESG. And uh, we're very grateful that you've taken the time to be with us today. I'm delighted. And best of luck to all of you listening in figuring out this weird and wacky um, new world that hopefully will be wonderful again someday. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.